This is the BFF Podcast, your one-stop shop for all things business finance. Each episode will feature an industry expert who will cover all the latest in technology, strategy, and optimizing the finance function for success. Hosted by Kate Wilson and Derek Chang, the BFF Podcast is brought to you by Tipalti, powering payables today and tomorrow. We're excited to welcome our BFF of the day, Peter Chenard. Peter is the Managing Director of Brooklyn's Consumer Group and an expert on-demand CFO. With over 30 years of business experience as both a CEO and CFO, Peter has led financial restructuring efforts and acquisitions, facilitated organizational development and culture change, developed business plans, launched new brands, raised capital, and achieved both strategic and financial results. Thanks for joining us, Peter. It is my pleasure. And from my home, Kate and Derek, thanks for having me on today. First, we'd like to dive into your background a little more. How did you get your start in finance? Well, as the title implies, I'm a consumer products guy with over 30 years experience. But truth be told, I got my start in finance as a financial analyst working for a billion-dollar toy retailer who was the only real competitor to Toys R Us, dating myself back to the late 80s. Do you have any fond memories of that time? Well, actually, the, the core focus of the role was financial planning and analysis and got to geek out doing margin dilution. Perhaps the The best memory was the job only lasted three months. I had an early success in technology and and changing how they did financial planning and unexpectedly got senior level visibility, you know, didn't even know it was happening, got a promotion to supervise merchandise accounting and inventory control, which was a monster job for a retailer. What was great about that and, and the memory is it set the foundation because I worked both in pure finance you know, source and use of funds, margin, and then accounting. And then I repeated that at my next job, doing both financial analysis and then accounting and back and forth. And it definitely set a foundation for my perspective for the rest of my career. Just to kind of dovetail off that for a second, when when you switch from finance to accounting, is that a, is that a challenging twist to try and do? Or how do you go about but how do you go about doing that? <laughs> yeah, how do you go about from moving from one to another like that? Well, I I had a mentor early on who who used to say that a finance person is useless if they don't understand what's behind the numbers. And you know, having just had an undergraduate degree in in finance and and was working on my master's degree in finance at the time, I I took it a little personal and said, no, finance is the source and use of funds, we help prioritize things, we set the tone, we help provide direction, blah, blah, blah. And he said, but yet, if you never can digest what's really underneath them, what's wrong, you're not going to be a good problem solver. And so he forced me to go back and manage accounting while someone was on maternity leave. And then we swapped jobs when she came back. And he he was great at saying, you know, even though you had just a few accounting classes undergraduate, you know, in your 20s is the best time to really get real experience. And he said, I, you know, you'll probably figure it out in a few weeks. Don't be afraid of it. And so the takeaway for anybody who's reading this, who's trying to think about how do I get started? I think your 20s is a perfect time to basically try and cover as many aspects of the foundation of, of finance and accounting. You'll broaden your perspective 
and you'll be much more valuable to others and much more satisfied, I believe, in your career. And I think it will drive your level of self-confidence in terms of what you're willing to take on versus someone else. A point to be made here is that I basically did that. And as a young guy, I was 27 years old and I got promoted to controller at a yogurt company. And at the end of that year, I barely had finished a year in that role. General Mills acquired my company and myself and the R&D staff. And eventually one out of three plants were the only folks that they kept just because of my breadth of experience, my degree, and the combination of all those pieces, I had broadened myself and was valuable to them. So it was a pretty foundational lesson that I had well before I was even 30. Do you think that finance is, this is going to sound strange, but do you think you have to be born with it or is it something that? (laughs) Yeah, I, you know, for your audience, anybody who loves finance and, and just purely yawns at the concept of me bringing up accounting, there are so many roles that really can leverage, especially today, you know, technology and analytical insights and insights drive direction and and so forth. So you don't have to do my roadmap. But back in the day when technology and information needed to be teased out, the value of people that knew both worlds were really valuable. And it's it's changed somewhat now. I kind of moved away from your question because I, I kind of want to set that foundation. But does someone need to be born with it? The only part of finance accounting that I think it helps to be born with is that I've met a lot of people who who work in accounting and finance that do not seem to be as curious enough that helps them to be good analysts. And that's the only thing I just wonder if it's not like you have to be born to be analytical. I think you have to be, you have to value curiosity. And as long as you have that kind of born with it, everything else can be learned. And that goes right into our next question, which is what do you enjoy most about being a CFO? I got two answers for you. So be patient with me. As a young division level CFO, I was driven by two things, problem solving and value creation. For problem solving, whether it was analyzing results, discussing a business problem or figuring out how the system worked, I always believed that I could do it and enjoy delivering value in, in that, in those arenas. It was kind of my foundation. More broadly, I kind of viewed my CFO role as being a business partner with the leadership team and often wanted to kind of get a result faster. In that capacity, I often took a strong role in strategic planning collaboration or in leading acquisitions very, very much the bigger corporate kind of thing. And that translated into a success. I was promoted to head corporate strategy for, if you live in California, a a big poultry company called Foster Farm. So, but then pivot later as a standalone CFO, I was twice focused on restructuring activities. And that translated into a promotion that drove a 14-year president CEO career. And so, one was driven out of pure, how do you leave? The other one was in the structuring role. There's a core need that the CFO has to step up you know, for the survival of the business, preparing it for sale, doing things. If you take those two different, very different kind of experiences, at the beginning of 2019, I joined Berkland Associates, which was mentioned in my profile. After both kind of CFO and CEO roles, I returned to the role of, of a consulting CFO and business advisor. It's like coming home. 
What's changed? Our focus is companies seed to Series C, and the mandate we have is to help founders accelerate their dreams. This is a mission that requires us to partner with the founders at many levels, problem solving, planning, developing capabilities, eventually building a team, you know, when they outgrow us. But all this leverages my experiences that I've had in very different CFO roles. And do you think that finance plays a role in the growth of a company? Absolutely, yes. But the best thing for all of your listeners is really kind of an illustration because it's an obvious yes. Otherwise, finance isn't relevant and we all like to be relevant. Two illustrations. Company A has a number of growth opportunities, but the company is over leveraged. As a new CFO, I inherited this situation. I framed a hypothesis around there being a series of decision pivots that can be made that if made quickly could free up cash for reinvestment. When I said that, they're like, okay, we're drowning. We're ready to run out of money for payroll. And here I am trying to frame a bigger kind of opportunity. And so CFOs can use their insights and drive. And what I did is I looked at cash flow analysis and and the various business product and geography margins. And that told me all that I needed. A mature business as compared to a startup often has a business within that's more profitable. Cut it to the core, figure out what it is and get back to that. That was the first situation that is an illustration of how finance broadly and a CFO specifically can help. A more recent example, Company B is a startup that just raised around where they have funds for that are meant to last 24 months. And surprise, six months in, the world has changed, whether it's a pandemic or just business assumptions. Finance needs to partner with leadership in those cases to help evaluate all of the options and help drive the optimal change and resource allocation. Should you spend money on sales and marketing or should you send you know, spend money on kind of R&D or engineering to meet the next product milestone? Which, which set of assumptions and milestone results are going to help you with your next raise? And so that may not be the same. And the best leaders make sure they not only get insights from their leadership team, but they engage finance as that quantitative partner to make sure that their, their strategies and objectives are driven by insights, and in this case, quantitative insights. So do you ever get into a situation where maybe one of the leaders or several of the leaders are reticent to act, even if they have the financial data, well, what holds them back? I have an early career history of working with family businesses, and so I have a smile on my face in terms of, have you ever had someone who's reticent? Well, and company A that was over leveraged, you can imagine the new CFO comes in, they're having trouble meeting payroll. And the first thing I say is, oh my God, I can totally figure out a way to completely change your entire business so we have enough cash flow to refocus on where you should have been in the first place. They, they're, they're not going to be brought on. And so this is where you kind of default back to core leading change. Back in the 90s, the John Carter from Harvard he wrote this book, Leading Change, Eight Steps. And I have that in my head because of so many roles and so much change management I've done. And it goes from not only having a crisis that kind of gets everybody rallied around it, but you make sure after you develop your plan and have insights that you basically celebrate small victories. And so part of managing change requires you to kind of go back with the assumptions 
say what's working and kind of bring leaders along. And that's, that's just a key to good collaboration. If they're just reticent, then you have to find the insight that gets them rallied around making tough decisions. And every leader wants to be right. And so having data to have a conversation versus just a point of view is the right way to move people from being stuck a little bit to you know, having a bias for action. Yeah, and I imagine you're constantly in data collection mode too, because you're going to have to validate your position throughout. For the vast majority of of CFOs, yes, you're you're always making sure that you're the provider of information, and that's almost invisible because it's kind of a back office today. But the more valuable work you spend is literally discussing that information insights and translating into action. And I think that's where CFOs increasingly provide more value. And that transitions nicely into our next question, which is what are the biggest challenges finance is facing today? The biggest challenges, huh? Well, I, you know, I think that if you think of finance broadly, I think of finance the market, finance the corporation, and finance the function. The only reason I even bring up market is we always like to think from a market perspective that we have an efficient market and you know access to capital. And during these pandemic times, I, I don't think there's any efficiency in that area at all, and you can't count on it. In fact, that's something we talk later about. You know, one of the things we should worry about and what we should do differently. But the biggest challenges for the corporation and the function is from corporation, the availability and use of capital in times like this, you know, if you don't have at least 24 months of cash, you have to think differently. You can't think about growth as much. You need to think about survival and the use of funds. And, you know, the connection to that from a function standpoint is the tools and analysis are really are brought to the forefront because you're using those that information insights to prioritize and distribute financial resources. I mean, that's an interesting point is like choosing what to put the investments in. If you had to choose between cash flow or let's say investing in new tools that help you from a productivity standpoint, how do you make that choice, especially now? This is the million dollar question. In fact, my firm, we've recently took frame this together and and put a product together. And if people go to the BrooklynAssociates.com website, you can actually look at what we're basically framing for people. So if you are kind of in the, the mix, so to speak, the last four to six weeks, you've been focused on survival and perhaps getting money from the government programs, the Paycheck Protection Program, PPP. And it's totally been reactionary given all these things happen. We are now pivoting saying, listen, the VCs are talking about if you don't have at least 24 months or can't see how to have your current funds last that period, then you need to make decisions to make those changes now. Basically, the underlying message is don't count on access to capital or a new round during this period because there's too many unknowns. And what that translates and how the finance and CFOs can help is that often CEOs need to basically have information from scenario planning. What if the world doesn't change for three months? What if it doesn't change for six months or nine months? And then 
you can basically talk about different volume impacts during those period from restaurants and wineries having basically hardly anything for a while versus people that do technology and enterprise customers that just might be slowing down. All of this are some of the biggest challenges the business are facing and hence finances facing in terms of how they partner with that so they make and manage the money. And understanding the environment then leads to answering your question, which is I've always been a big fan of focusing on the sales cycle, right? And and marketing and the sales cycle as a resource priority and leveraging the products you have as, as a finance guy's priority. If for some reason the sales cycle wasn't going to result in anything and advancing the product could get you closer to your next fundraise, then perhaps someone could choose to do that. But that's a that's a riskier bet because if you have to generate at least some cash to offset your burn, you're better off investing in the number of salespeople and the technologies to basically get your customers and deliver them sooner. And so there's a range of decisions right for every business, but I actually lean toward controlling your own destiny through the sales cycle with the products you have. And I think that should be the vast majority of people's biases, you know, accelerate your revenue opportunities, decrease your expenses and freeze all the discretionary. And beyond that, you're just being clever. Sometimes clever wins though, right? Exactly. To kind of piggyback off of that, how do you choose technology for financial operations so that you're set up to succeed in case of times like this? Well, if you keep the challenge forefront, understanding, managing, leveraging the constant evolution of, of the finance stack, all the different pieces of technology that are used by finance to translate the power of these tools and the resulting information analysis into what is needed to manage the business, you've, you've started at the right position. This is something where I've been managing technology for most of my career. Being a kid that was born pre-Y2K and dealing with those, I've implemented three ERPs and so many different tools. I've kind of studied this. And for, for your listeners who I'm going to basically list off these 10 things too quickly, go to strategy and business. Almost like every other summer, they summarize these things and refine it. And for me, they always have the 10 same areas that I think are incredibly important. Here they are. First one, you put your customer value first. Imagine not having your best foot forward and having the invoicing done right and so forth. It would be kind of a cluster. The second one, simplify your architecture. It can get a bit overwhelming, especially if you have a lean team or your business scales really quickly. Three, you have to design the technology for flexibility and speed because especially for a startup, the unknown of how your business is going to change needs to be considered. Four, you have to engage with your workforce and, and maybe even your culture. If people aren't going to use the technology, you're doing it too soon. The next one, adopt a services mindset. All the technology has to deliver something that is of value to your organization. You know, in terms of the sixth one, I basically develop a plan or plot the journey before you're starting, kind of know where you're going. Seven, organize by capabilities. You know, think of what you need for accounts payable. Think what you need for billing. Think what you need for maybe AR collections and bringing the cash in. Eight, you want to be agile and you want to be user-centric. Nine, invest in the resources that are going to make all the change stick. And that's 
something that kind of connects back to the workforce and culture goal. But, you know, you have to be mindful of the items that are not fleeting. And last one, you want to partner with people that basically share your values. And when you talk to the implementation team, you can trust them because if you're implementing a lot, especially as a young company, you know, you need a lot of support from those teams. So I know that was a lot, like I said, but each one of those becomes important for different businesses. And it's a great way for someone to start, especially if they're trying to design the future finance stack for a business. Well, what's interesting is that you didn't lead with, say, ROI, right? That you're looking at a a much more holistic approach to how does it affect the entire organization and your goals? And then if it does all those things, it's going to meet some lifetime value. Yeah, Derek, I, I think the people who think of just pure ROI and my experience tend to be a little bit later stage company. If, if if someone came in and was pitching a new technology for a company and they already have an existing stack, why this will be important for me to focus on now? Because they have to run their business plus all these, the technology, the ROI and the value in terms of the architecture are more important. At Brooklyn, we get involved with a lot of startups in the beginning. And so I was making sure I'm very mindful of how to help an organization think through how they build their stack from day one. So part of it is, I think, an earlier the company begins to create their finance stack, the more they should be holistic. And I think a little bit later, they tend to get a little bit more ROI oriented. But you should never forget these elements because you got to make that change stick, as I mentioned, number nine. And there's a good chance you can find a brilliant piece of new technology for your stack. And if the users are had like five years on something else and just don't make it work, you could just be kind of constipating your whole business in terms of not moving forward. So the leader, whether it's a CFO or, or broadly other people in your team, you have to be mindful of that because the goal is to focus on the business, not the tools that are supposed to enable success. So is there kind of a tipping point, say you have established technology and you're hearing that you need to suddenly make a change, you know, is there a tipping point for for that decision? My personal philosophy has always been a little bit of, I want to provide a high level of service, but I've often believed that I create more value by having an eye toward transformation. And so I think a CFO's job and senior parts of the finance team, they have to value transformation at certain points. So the tipping point for me is beyond an ROI and so forth, where it's self-evident, when you start running into the limits of technology, you know, you should have already know what the next level of changes in your tech stack could be to solve problems. If you've done a good job, you've already framed those to other people, other stakeholders of when we reach this point, this is when we'll have to change. So the tipping point is you have to make sure the wheels don't come off your business because you were too slow to act. And so trying to find those points is a little bit more of an art. You know, it's not like if you had a, a business that was going to go from two to $8 million that you knew at $4 million, that's the answer because one person might make a particular system really sing. So it's a function of both the people and the use and where the growth is. That triangle is kind of the secret sauce in my mind 
of defining when an important idea has come. That's kind of a roundabout answer, but on that's being an honest guy relative to the fact that every business will see this differently and prioritize it. But I think they have to think of the people, you know, making sure the wheels don't come off, the ROI and the ability to do this now in terms of setting priorities to really define when those opportunities present themselves. And I think our listeners would really like to hear, Peter, what you think success looks like for a finance team. So I think job one, forget the finance, begins with the CFO has to be a relevant leader in the organization. You don't want the finance people to be a back office group that's just not going to be something that people will feel like success, even if it was a critical part. If that CFO, he or she drives the direction success of the organization, leveraging their knowledge and understanding of the financial position of the company, then the CEO and the team is really going to feel success. But job two is the finance team delivers a high level of decision support. Again, they're going to have to leverage their knowledge and technology to manage the complexity and drive productivity. And job number three maybe isn't as sexy, but if everybody thinks of the finance team as being lean but strong, they're going to respect them because you know if they're advocating cost-conscious and they weren't cost-conscious themselves, then it kind of falls apart. So job number three, having a lean but strong team that can adeptly manage the breadth of the core finance and accounting functions and really not make it evident to the rest of the organization that all the accounting compliance and payables and receivables and all that other stuff doesn't get in the way from their ability to do decision support and help the guidance. That's what success looks like to me. And obviously, it's not one thing. It's at least those three core things. I never equated lean finance with just being a leader. And that's a, that's an interesting take on that. Derek, lead by example, right? At the core, if finance is going to help be change agents, then they can't be the opposite of what they're laying out. And so honestly, I, I always tell people that there's a higher standard part of my leadership makeup. We have to be the people that do things that if we're going to be partnering and coaching with others and saying, this is how they have to think, you can't be the person that is going out to lunch every day and you know spending T&E money differently than what you're advocating. It's just, you got to be a better better example in, in terms of enabling yourself to be that change agent that I think most organizations need. Not a cop, a change agent. And that's a key thing to remember in terms of the evolution of what a successful finance team is. And I think that plays really nicely into our next question, which is, does finance need a culture? <laughs> All right. Now you bring a smile on my face. You know, I, I've, I've had some fun you know, stories in my past. You can honestly kind of tell by some of my comments that I, I kind of believe that people should set strong examples. Perhaps the modern day discussion of culture would would be about where people work, how they collaborate with others, the value of staying current in technology, county rules, blah, 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 blah. I believe all the other elements are worked on, you know, worked on it sometimes, but the foundation elements for a finance culture should never be forgotten. A finance team must have a set of shared values around having it, having attention to detail, demonstrate integrity in all things they do, and be able to translate accounting and finance information 
into actual understandable information for the people who use it. That kind of culture enables finance to achieve the status of being a trusted business partner. And for me, that is a gold star culture. How do you introduce innovation into finance, into the team, into that thinking of organically coming up with new solutions, especially now when things are changing so quickly? So the the key to operating with great success in problem solving, as an engineer would say, is to do root cause analysis. Root cause analysis for innovation, I believe, is tied back to curiosity, which interestingly enough, I told you is something that I always believe that when I find people that are curious, I kind of know they're going to be an analyst. And without that or you know, other actions in their past, I can't interview for analytical behavior as well as I've seen the success of people that really generate new ideas and so forth because they're curious. They don't look at the financial results just to explain them to their CFO or their controller or manager. They look at them and they want to know things. And so I believe the core to innovation is having people on your finance team and hopefully all of them that have some level of curiosity, how things work, why could it, why isn't it better? You know, setting the bar constantly higher, like when are we going to do, when are we going to make this change? This piece of technology can do this. And they may not have the perspective yet of how priorities are setting if they're more junior in their career, but basically constantly nagging their team to think and look at this and have the shared value of let's just make things better. Let's, let's really make sure that we're world-class and we're using the best tools and we're, you know, we're making sure they get the most out of them. That kind of background, I think Daisy chain provides a great Daisy chain link to, you know, successful innovation in the finance group. Are there any personal missions or philosophies that you're super passionate about? My personal mission is kind of lead, manage, and support transformation. And I I get to enjoy those aspects now because I'm kind of in act three of my professional career. You know, I, my first act was developing all the skills and becoming a CFO early in my career at a big companies and then being a standalone CFO. And then kind of being launched into act two, where I was a president CEO for 14 years, leading a family board in in one of the roles. And so after 30 years, I kind of pivoted. And my third act was to, I want to advise startups and businesses for kind of my retirement career, you know, later in life. And in fact, in 2018, I went back and got a second master's degree. I already had one in finance. I went and got one accounting. It takes a little bit of a passion around being a nerd to basically get into the technical matters that face so many businesses these days. And I want to not be just the business person. I want to be the technical person wrapped up all in one kind of bow. So I could be there and just, they ask questions, I give them answers. I don't go research thing. So in this last act, I kind of return to my CFO roots, but stand ready to help CEOs, founders, and owners you know, hopefully realize their dreams. And so there's the context of that mission, but it's a mission I'm really passionate about. I've kind of done enough to kind of be at the point where I'm excited to be an advisor and help others create their dreams. I've done startups. I've owned my own winery. 
you know, raise capital. I've done a lot of different things. So now I just want to help see other things happen and be part of that. And that's kind of where I'm at now. Are there any particular types of entrepreneurs that you gravitate towards? The obvious answer is for Brooklyn Associates, I run the consumer group. And so I am passionate about people that make products that interact and help individuals versus purely the enterprise concepts and business to business. I I do work with businesses in the practice that have hardware and you know inventory because that that connects to my foundation growing up in CPG and having a deep understanding of manufacturing consumer products. The 14 years I was president and CEO, I I jumped into a winery as a restructuring CFO and it kind of got stuck there and had an amazing role. And next thing I know, I've spent half of my career in the wine industry as a leader. So I went on to get wine certifications. And so I'm I am passionate about products as much as I am about the key aspects of finance. I've taught in two different MBA programs, in corporate finance, MBA students. I've loved that interacting with people, talking about concepts, you know, time value of money and all the components people have to learn. And so I love that, but I also love real products connecting to real people. And whether the success is improving quality or it's direct marketing, I've kind of gone the full circle on that. And so I love a little bit of both, living in both parts of my brain, the technical aspects of, of finance and accounting and going to market. What's the best way to go to market for consumer products? And the combination of those makes for a very interesting life. So are you a red wine guy or a white wine guy? So, you know, two answers for that. One is, you know, anybody in the wine industry that tells you, that they're one or the other didn't go through marketing one-on-one. Basically, the answer is supposed to be, and I chuckle when I say this, my favorite glass of wine is the one I have in my hand. And another way to, to basically frame that a little bit is in the wine industry, people have always asked, well, you know, what got you started? And, you know, so many people say, oh, this incredible bottle of wine I had back in whatever set me on this journey. It's kind of this romantic deal. But, you know, I was a fraternity guy in college. I like beer. and But I learned in 20s that, you know, women loved wine. You know, when you went out, I'd be honest with you, I liked wine too. And then, you know, having enough wine with my, my wife now of 20 plus years in exploring wine, I really do love wine. But I give it credit to that I love women more. And if she wanted to explore wine, I thought that was great. So I'll have wine for dinner. and. It was great practice or experience to have done that because when I jumped into a winery as a as primarily restructuring CFO, I, about a year and a half into it, I was named president of one of the oldest wineries in California. And I basically brought my curiosity of product and quickly tried to catch up from an industry standpoint. I now have three different certifications in wine. And I just did that to keep up because as a leader, it's not enough for a business like that to be able to guide and have organizational skills and quantitative skills. You basically have to connect with the full team, love of product knowledge and represent in this case, a family appropriately. And so I dove into that. I drink a little bit more white than red. You know, I was a big 
red and not white when I started. It changes all the time. The most interesting wine I can find is what I'll choose for dinner. I owned a winery with a partner that we just closed down because everything going up at the end of this year after nearly nine years. And we focus on Pinot Noir from the Russian River Valley, both Pinot Noir and Chardonnay from that area. But we made cab, we made all kinds of stuff, and we operated in the city of San Francisco, like I said, nearly 10 years before all this stuff caused us to think about just shutting down brick and mortar operations and, and doing other things. And this somewhat on tangent, I guess, the the concept of teaching finance into an organization that is very focused on making, say, a consumer product like wine. Is there a challenge there to kind of translate these bigger business corporate frameworks into kind of more brick and mortar mom and pop shops? Yeah, you you don't actually ever say that they're corporate anything because family businesses, small business, last thing they want to hear is consulting speak. And so what I do is I take you know, what I know that is best practices. And I translate it into usually taunts and challenges and questions. And so there's kind of a whole school of thought that leadership through questions can sometimes get and engage people where just speaking to them or being a little bit too much of a professor doesn't work. In the case of smaller businesses, I often, when people are challenged with a lot, will basically find a way to say, do you want to be successful? And of course, they're going to say yes. The next thing is, I said, well, to be successful for you, I think we're going to have to do these three things. Never five, never seven, never 10. I'm trying to get change moving. And those three, I will have spent a lot of time on because they're eventually going to be my short-term wins. And then everything else is a little bit riskier in terms of what actions we take. But at that point, if I have some trust, then I can have a broader conversation. And what I just gave you is an insight to what I have found as being effective change management and helping founders, CEOs, owners create real change, whether it's transformation or just incremental change for them to move to the next level. It really depends on the opportunities that that exist. But getting started, it comes right back to human nature. People don't want to be wrong. How can you be less wrong? Basically have your insights and strategies driven by having done your math homework, right? Use them insights. You can't use insights for every everything you do. You need to provide some gut, but usually those are the things you shouldn't lead with. You should lead with the items that can create a couple singles and doubles, so to speak, to use the, bat, to use the baseball metaphor. And, and just go for home runs right away. Because the trust is really a cornerstone to really having great leadership change. And, and that is really important in today's world, for sure. And now for our last question. These are unprecedented times. Do you have any advice for our finance friends out there? Sure. I mean, I think a lot of my finance friends know of or have been directly involved lately in the paycheck protection programs and getting monies and subsidies and, and things like this, or just making tough decisions, you know, having to do with layoffs or furloughs. We've all been focused on so much of that activity. And, and, you know, this was needed, you know, we shouldn't apologize for 
making sure that, you know, we focus on survival, you know, we haven't changed the context. We have to digest that the growth environment has changed. The context for success has changed. And this means we need to change too. Navigating through uncertainty is the new leadership mandate. And if that sounds like kind of a slogan, well, the last two weeks, the folks in my firm, the other CFOs, myself, we've been trying to make sure we can think through how we can help our clients move from the reactionary and scrambling and survival focus to, you know, how do we make sure we can help leaders lead and reframe that? How can we get them to make sure that they understand that navigating through uncertainty is the new leadership mandate? And the background is, you know, we have over 200 clients that in that we interact with a range of venture investors and across the board. And I, I said this earlier in the call, we're hearing from all of them that if a company has less than 24 months of runway, they need to make changes now in their business to meet this metric. This is a survival metric, you know, given the unknown, it's not growth as much. You know, how does finance lead during something like this? Well, they develop information or tools for organizational decision-making. This is what they're focused on. And we basically put on our website that you need to be start with realistic scenario planning. Create the scenarios around no change in our condition for three months, six months, nine months, and keep the scenarios updated each month, integrating what you've learned and what we've all learned about what's going on, and use the information to inform or drive decision-making. Any of your listeners that want to learn more, they can go to brooklynassociates.com, our website, and we have a couple of things that can kind of get people to think about, and they can reach out to us via the website or me personally and find the bio. Some of our CFOs are, are offering a, a one-hour conversation with clients that are like, don't know how to get started, but probably need to do this themselves in these times. We're here to help, and hopefully this is a way to get people started, your listeners get started in these unprecedented times of what to do next. Do you think, just like any of the recessions that you've gone through, that after we overcome this, that there are basic skills that you know we've picked up and that are going to help in the future? I do, and I, I think everybody should understand that my personal perspective Okay, is that if you've lived through the the recessionary times of 2008 and 2009, you have to realize that to get our economy up and running, this is likely to be drawn out equally as long and might be as tougher uh, than we experienced because I think it's going to, as we've all seen, hit the consumer side of this deeper and consumer Spending has always been what has kind of jumpstarted our economy and got everything back. But there's a real fear of bringing everybody back into life as usual until we have a handle on this. And they're talking about testing a cure, you know, is taking a lot more time. And so patience is going to be key. And what I think we're going to learn from this is that we have to know how to pivot between focusing a business for growth and good times and take advantage of those and realizing having gone through something like this, that you need to know how to make changes, decisions on a timely basis. And you have to always be discussing, well, what if these assumptions don't work? In this case, this will be a dire set of scenario planning compared to, oh, what if you just 
lose 10% of your revenue compared to your plan? What are you prepared to do? And so perhaps what we'll all take out of this is a better sense of, all right, if this plan doesn't work and the money doesn't last us 24 months after we do a raise, we lose 10% here, then this is what we'll do. Hopefully we'll be better prepared to talk about, well, if this doesn't work, then we'll do this versus just going for it, which has been a little bit of our growth context for a while and for good reasons. Markets have been good to us and market opportunities have been great for a lot of different startups and they don't want to be beaten to the punch, so to speak. But this new you know, situation we have is going to teach us lessons on how to value a broader array of, of items. And I think one of those from finance people will be one of the benefits of having insights from scenario financial planning that get us to think more broadly about how to win. And I think knowing how to win, no matter what the scenarios are, is a good thing to take from these tough times. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you again, Peter, for joining us. We really loved having you on the podcast. It was great. Thank you so much. For all our listeners, be sure to tune in next time for a new episode of the BFF podcast. Thanks for joining your BFFs. Subscribe to the Business Finance Friends podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever podcasts live. If you have any feedback or would like to participate in our podcast series, email us at bffs at tapalti.com.